We are in Nehemiah 5 today, and I'm going to be very upfront with you about our passage of Scripture. It disturbs me. Uh, It's very troubling to me. A couple of weeks ago, I was preaching on Nehemiah chapter 2, and I shared with you that I see some gray in Nehemiah. Nehemiah makes a few leadership decisions that are questionable, especially when we compare him with Ezra, his predecessor. Uh, When Ezra refused to accept the armed escort to Jerusalem because he trusted in the Lord's hand, Nehemiah readily accepts the armed escort. Uh, Nehemiah seems to be this kind of like shoot from the hip type of leader where he makes decisions on his own. He consults no one around him. He has no problem telling others what to do. And the text never comes right out and tells us that he's making questionable decisions or that he's making good decisions. Kind of leaves it to us to figure out, is this good? Is this not so good? Uh, Even in the last couple chapters, Nehemiah 3 and 4, Nehemiah chapter 3, we have 32 verses that list dozens and dozens of names of different people and different families that contributed to the rebuilding of the wall of Jerusalem. We go from section to section to section of that wall, listing all the people who contributed. But did you notice something in Nehemiah 3? There's one name missing from that list, and that's the name of Nehemiah. You do see a Nehemiah, but it's a different Nehemiah than the Nehemiah that we study in Nehemiah. Um, But he's not there. And then in chapter 4, he boldly proclaims, we built the wall, he tells everybody. We is a strange thing to say when you have a list of 50 names and his name isn't on it. Now, it could be that Nehemiah was acting as the project manager. He wasn't at one particular section of the wall because he was overseeing the whole project. But the problem is the text just doesn't say that. It doesn't say anything about him. It's it's completely silent about his role in that chapter. Good or bad, it's gray. Our text today in Nehemiah 5 is not gray. It's not white either. It's a sludgy black, thick with sin and corruption. And that's what disturbs me most about this passage. If this is your first time with us, we like to work through books of the Bible here at Riverstone. We allow the text of the scripture to guide the message from the pulpit. We've been studying the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, and these books tell us the story of the Israelites' return from exile. In Nehemiah 1-4, Nehemiah leads a group of people back to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls of the city. He faces opposition from opponents from outside of the nation of Israel. As Pastor Austin showed us last week, his enemies were all around him. North, south, east, west, opposition was closing in from every direction. But by God's grace, the people continue the work. They rely on prayer. They take personal responsibility to protect themselves. And they persevere through it. The Israelites handle the opposition from outside very well. But apparently during this whole time, there was a rottenness in the core on the inside. And that's what we're going to see in Nehemiah 5. So let's read the first few verses together. Nehemiah 5, starting in verse 1. The Bible says, Now there was a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, We, our sons and our daughters, are many. Therefore, let us get grain that we may eat and live. There were others who said, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses that we might get grain because of the famine. 
Also, there were those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is like the flesh of our brothers, our children like their children. Yet behold, we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters are forced into bondage already. And we are helpless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. Here's the situation. There's a famine in the land. And the poorer people in the community are suffering a shortage of food. But the famine isn't the problem. The text says that there was a great outcry against the Jewish brothers. Those words, a great outcry, that's one word in the Hebrew text, the original Hebrew language. It's the same word that's used of the Egyptians in the book of Exodus who emitted a great outcry when God strikes down their firstborn sons. There was a great outcry in the land. It's the same word used earlier in Exodus of the Israelites when they were being oppressed by the Egyptians. The Egyptians were killing their kids. The Egyptians were forcing them to work in slavery. And there was a great outcry among the Jewish people. I even found one verse that uses that phrase of people when their football team doesn't win the championship. There's a great outcry among that. That's in the Apocrypha, not in the actual scriptures, but, but it's there. So it's an emotionally charged word, right? Not the kind of word that you use flippantly, but the word that has great weight to it, usually of one group oppressing another group. And here in verse 5, or verse 1 of Nehemiah 5, it's used of the Israelites against the Israelites. An outcry against their own people. They're crying for three main reasons. The Jews say in verse 3 that they had to mortgage their fields and their houses. Now we say, and we might think, what's the big deal? We all have mortgages today. I mean, that's kind of the American way, isn't it? But it's not the Jewish way. It's not the Jewish way. In fact, the Old Testament law forbids the Jews from profiting from other Jews. We'll look at a few verses in a minute that shows that. Secondly, they say in verse 4 that they had to borrow money just to pay the Persian tax. And third, worst of all, in verse 5, the situation has gotten so bad that they are forced to sell their own sons and daughters to pay the bills and put food on their table. Now, I should say back then, this wasn't exactly like 19th century slavery in America. It wasn't even uncommon for an Israelite to sell themselves into slavery to pay off their debt. It wasn't a race thing back then. Uh, sometimes it was more along the lines of like an indentured servant or a live-in maid or something like that. So it's not exactly the kind of slavery that we think about today, but it's still not a good situation. It's still slavery in some sense of the term. And, and to make it worse, they're selling their kids. So we're not going to let them off the hook with this. And the Jewish people recognize the travesty of this event. That's why they say in verse 5, our flesh is like the flesh of our brothers. Our children are like their children. In other words, we, we might be poor, but we're part of the same family as the wealthier Jews. And yet those wealthier Jews are sitting back and watching us sell our kids into slavery instead of helping us. What a horrifying, disturbing situation. But it gets even worse before it gets any better. Look at verse 6. Nehemiah writes, Then I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. I consulted with myself and contended with the nobles and the rulers and said to them, You are exacting usury each from his brother. 
Therefore, I held a great assembly against them. And I said to them, we, according to our ability, have redeemed our Jewish brothers who were sold to the nations. Now would you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us? Then they were silent and could not find a word to say. Now, of course, Nehemiah is angry, as he should be, as any leader should be. His people are selling their children into slavery just to put food on the table. You thought things were bad in America. It's nothing compared to what they were going through. Nehemiah is outraged, but then he says something kind of odd. Look at verse 7 again. He says, I consulted with myself, and I contended with the nobles and the rulers. How do you consult with yourself? What does that even mean? The Hebrew there literally reads, my heart was counseled upon me. Some translations put it like this. They say, I thought it over. And it might be as simple as he thought about it, he, he considered it, he mulled it over in his own mind. But the Hebrew there is very vague. It's very difficult to, to understand what exactly is happening, uh, even in the original language. Normally, you consult or you take counsel with other people, not with yourself. I don't know of any other passage in the Bible that encourages somebody to consult or take counsel with themselves. I mean, if, if the pastors came to an elders meeting and the elders asked, hey, why did you make that decision? What brought you to that place? And they said, well, you know, I consulted with myself and decided that was a good idea. There might be a few questions that follow that one up, right? This is another one of those, is this good or bad kind of situations with Nehemiah? This is gray. Is he acting like a good leader or not? I don't know. It's gray. But it results in him contending with the other leaders. That word contending is a legal courtroom term. It's normally used in the language of like a lawyer or something like that, a judge. He took up a case against them. He brought them to court. He went into legal battle. It's not just a heated moment of discussion among leaders. Nehemiah accuses them and says, you are exacting usury, each from his own brother. And now we begin to see the real problem here. Yes, there was a famine in the land. And as with all things, the economically poor were most affected. The lower class felt the greatest impact from this. Now you would think with the great display of unity that we saw in Nehemiah 3, that the Jewish community would come together and help out. They, the, the richer, the wealthier might help the poorer people to have enough food on their plates. But instead of godly charity, the rich people took advantage of the poor. The poor were mortgaging their fields to the noblemen. The, the poor were borrowing money with interest from the Israelite leadership. The upper class were taking advantage of the lower class to make a few bucks. Now, in order to really understand the impact of this, we have to understand this isn't just morally wrong. This was legally wrong for a Jewish person. The Jewish law forbade Israelites to lend money at interest to the Jews. Look at Exodus 22, verse 25. We'll put this verse on the screen so you don't have to keep flipping back and forth here. Exodus 22, 25 says, If you lend money to my people, to the poor among you, you are not to act as a creditor to him. You shall not charge him interest. That's pretty clear, isn't it? It gets even more clear in the book of Leviticus. Leviticus 25, verse 35 says, If your brother becomes poor and cannot maintain himself with you, you shall support him as though he were a stranger and a sojourner, and he shall live with you. 
Take no interest from him or profit, but fear your God that your brother may live beside you. You shall not lend him your money at interest, nor give him your food for profit. This is the exact situation we see in Nehemiah chapter 5. There are poor that cannot maintain themselves. They need help. The other Israelites were both morally and legally obligated to help them financially without making a profit on them. It's like when a family member asks you for a loan. Maybe you've had this happen in your life before. They need money. Their, their car needs some extra help. Their roof is leaking. They just got laid off and they're getting behind in their bills. Whatever it is. What do you do when they ask you for that loan? You lend them money, don't you? And you're not going to say, well, I'll give you $1,000 this month, but you owe me $1,200 back next month. You're, you're not a pawn shop to your own family, right? You're not looking to make a buck on your family members, hopefully. When my wife and I and our family moved into the area here in July, the housing market was crazy. Maybe you tried to move at this time too, but people were buying houses the day that they went on the market for tens of thousands of dollars above asking price. So we knew that we had to move. We had a short window to get here uh, before my job started at Cairn University. And, and we realized we had to, to find a way to get our foot in the door quicker. So I talked to my parents and the Lord has blessed my parents richly in their life. And they are the most gracious people I've ever met in my life. And they said, why don't we help you out? We'll give you some cash up front. That way you can put cash down on this house and you can kind of get your foot in the door a little bit quicker than maybe the other people around you. And you know what they asked for in return? Nothing. Nothing. Other than the return of their money after we sold our house in Michigan, they asked for nothing in return because that's what family does. And that's what church family does. But that's not what the family in Nehemiah 5 were doing. They were taking advantage of their fellow Jews. They, they looked at the situation as a way to make a quick buck. And that's wrong. And Nehemiah calls them out on it. In verse 8, you might have noticed, it says they were able to buy back their fellow Jews from the foreign nations when they returned from exile. But now they were selling those very same Jews to one another. So he's yelling at the nobles and the leaders and they're silent. I mean, what can they say to this? There's no response to their sin. And he's right. They're engaging in disgusting sin. In many ways, this passage might hit home for us right now. We think of the situation in Syria and what's happening over there in the Middle East and, and realize that there will probably be people that are trying to make a dollar off of the destitution there. That's wrong. Some of us feel like maybe we're in a situation like this at times. We're not hopefully selling our family into slavery, but we know the feeling of rich politicians getting richer off the backs of the lower class. Imagine this oppression coming primarily not from people outside the church, but from people right here, your brothers and sisters in Christ. That's the kind of tragedy that this is in Nehemiah 5. And the leaders are ashamed. They are humiliated into silence. So Nehemiah, characteristically, continues to yell at them. Look at verse 9. He goes on and he says, Again, I said, the thing which you are doing is not good. Should you not walk in the fear of our God because of the reproach of the nations, our enemies? Nehemiah says, walk in the fear of God. And I think he's referring here to the words from Leviticus 25, which said we should do this for the fear of the Lord. 
The Israelites are at risk of becoming a laughing stock to the nations. They just got released from 70 years of slavery in other areas, only to begin enslaving themselves. That's embarrassing. Nehemiah says, fear God. One day you're going to have to stand before your maker and give an account for how you handled this tragedy. Did you take advantage of your fellow believer? Did you treat them as you would your own family? Are you here to profit off of one another or are you here to serve the Lord together and demonstrate your love for God by your love for your neighbor? Fear God, he tells them. That sounds great, doesn't it? Well, here's what's disturbing. Look at verse 10 and 11. Nehemiah's words. And likewise, I, my brothers and my servants, are lending them money and grain. Please let us leave off this usury. Please give them back this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive groves, and their houses, also the hundredth part of the money and of the grain, the new wine and oil that you are exacting from them. This is what I call the snake in the mailbox moment right here, the surprise that no one sees coming. The Hebrew in verse 10 is very emphatic. It highlights that Nehemiah himself was doing the same thing as these other noblemen. And even I, my brothers and servants, are, leading them, are lending them money and grain. Even I, Nehemiah says, he admits to doing it himself. In fact, as I studied this this week, something surprised me even more. Something I, I noticed for the first time this week studying this. The original language of the Hebrew text here in verse 9 actually starts out not, and I said... But the words of the Hebrew are, and he said. Now, why is that significant? Well, the Hebrews, when they read this out loud, they would read, and I said, because it's continuing Nehemiah's speech. But the actual text has this intrusion by the third person narrator. In other words, instead of Nehemiah confessing this of himself, the way this reads in the original language is the narrator tattles on Nehemiah. He has to come out and say what Nehemiah doesn't want to say by himself. Nehemiah is up there shouting and screaming and yelling and even maybe taking these guys to court. And we find out he's been extorting his fellow Jews the whole time. That's why this passage disturbs me. Now you see this far too often in ministry and leadership. Josh Duggar, who is an advocate for healthy families and fidelity in marriage, a few years ago was arrested for charges of child pornography. You might remember many years ago, Ted Haggard, an evangelist who once advocated against legalizing gay marriages, was outed by a male prostitute for having a three-year-long affair. We don't even have to look inside Christian culture to see it. I was reading an article to, uh, last week that was calling out Bill Gates for flying around the world in his private fossil fuel burning jet to tell us how we are contributing to climate change by driving to work in our cars. We see it all over. It's even in the Bible. Hypocrisy from leadership. Pastor Austin and I were talking about this this past week. It's, it's so painful to read this because we want Nehemiah to be our hero. We, we want him to be a great guy. We want him to be a perfect exemplary leader. But this isn't gray leadership here. This is sludgy, black sin. 
Nehemiah is leading the charge to take advantage of the poor believers in Jerusalem. Now, to his credit, Nehemiah kind of repents. I mean, the narrator has to do it for him, but he's quoting his own words. After yelling at everyone else, he admits to it himself, and he leads his community in their repentance. Look at how the people respond to this in verse 12 and 13. Then they said, we will give it back. We will require nothing from them. We will do exactly as you say. So I called the priest and I took an oath from them that they would do according to this promise. I also shook out the front of my garment and I said, thus may God shake out every man from his house and from his possessions who does not fulfill this promise. Even thus must he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, amen. And they praised the Lord. Then the people did according to this promise. So Nehemiah leads the people in repentance. They even take up this oath that they will give back the money. They, they call down an oath or an, a curse upon anyone who refuses to repent and refuses to follow through. He, he does this whole like big dramatic thing. I'm going to shake out my folds of my garment. God will shake you out of here if you don't do what you're supposed to do. What do we learn from this? Our hope cannot be in human leadership. Nehemiah is a sinner. He was not the savior of Jerusalem. Say what you will about the gray areas of leadership in the book of Nehemiah, the first four chapters. What he does here is wrong. There's no question about it. I'm, I'm glad he repents. Like, I'll, I'll say that. He might lead the way in sin, but he also leads the way in repentance. He has at least that going for him. But I think this is a cautionary tale that we're reading today. Nehemiah is not Jesus. He is a sinner like you and I. I'm not Jesus. Pastor Austin is not Jesus. I said this a few weeks ago. We, we are not taking advantage of you in the same way that Nehemiah took advantage of his people. Our, our leadership might be flawed. Hopefully it's not this flawed. But this is a cautionary tale to show us the gravity of human sin that reaches even the godliest of people. In one of the most exciting moments of Israelite history, they commit some of the greatest travesties against one another. And one of the greatest leaders in Israelite history is leading the way in that sin. But church, we have to recognize that you and I are no better than Nehemiah. I hate to break it to you. It's easy to be like Nehemiah, in fact. It's easy to look at the sins of others and to get indignant about what they are doing as if we are not sinners too. I mean, I can stand up here and preach about the Josh Duggars and the Ted Haggers of the Christian world, yet I confess I am no more righteous than they are. I'm not. Now, please understand me. I don't look at child pornography. Never have I engaged in extramarital affairs, homosexual or otherwise. But when we take seriously the word of God that says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We don't compare ourselves to other people and ask whether we're more righteous than they are. We compare ourselves to the holy standard of a perfect God. And we recognize that we all fall short of that glory. That's why it's utterly ridiculous when people think that they can be saved by their own good works. 
If you think that your goodness or your righteousness is enough to get you into, your, into heaven, if you think that your religiousness is enough to earn you favor before God, you need to pick up your Bible and read it again. It does not have a very positive outlook on human nature. That's why when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, when we believe in his death and his resurrection, his righteousness is given to us. He does not take our righteousness and say, yeah, you're good enough. Come on in. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus gives us his righteousness and takes from us our sin. What a beautiful exchange that is. That's the gospel. Self-righteous Nehemiah is not our savior, but actually righteous Jesus is. And that, I believe, is what this text is pointing us to. Now, maybe you think I'm being too harsh on Nehemiah. I mean, after all, he did confess, didn't he? Well, he confessed. The narrator kind of had to do it for him, help him out a little bit. But again, I'm going to be very upfront with you about this text. It bothers me. Not only the overt sin that bothers me, but even what happens next, this last paragraph bothers me. It does not sit well with me. Let's read it and I'll share with you why that is. Look at verses 14 to 19. Nehemiah says, Moreover, from the day that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of King Artaxerxes, for 12 years, neither I nor my kinsmen have eaten the governor's food allowance. But the former governors who were before me laid burdens on the people, and took from them bread and wine besides 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants domineered the people. But I did not do so because of the fear of God. I also applied myself to the work on this wall. We did not buy any land, and all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 Jews and officials besides those who came to us from the nations that are around us. Now that which was prepared for each day was one ox and six choice sheep, also birds were prepared for me, and once in ten days all sorts of wine were furnished in abundance. Yet for all this I did not demand the governor's food allowance, because the servitude was heavy on this people. Remember me, O oh my God, for good, according to all that I have done for this people. Now before I comment on exactly what Nehemiah says here, let me comment on when, when Nehemiah says it. This paragraph is chronologically out of place. What Nehemiah is doing here is he's looking at his entire time, his 12 years in Israel, in Jerusalem, and he's summarizing it. And he's saying, here's what you need to know about me. But next week, when we jump into Nehemiah chapter 6, you'll see that it's going to pick up and continue that wall project from Nehemiah chapter 4. So this final paragraph of this chapter is a bit of an intrusion into the storyline. Right after Nehemiah reports on his sin and the sin of the leadership, before continuing the story, he takes a moment to share with everyone how great he is. And that bugs me. This is like if your kids get punished and they say, Mom, Dad, you're right, I did wrong, but think about all the good things that I've done over my 10 years of life. Who's buying that one? Think about the full picture here. Nehemiah narrates in the first 13 verses that he and other rich leaders took advantage of the poor people during a famine and charged them interest on their loans, financially enslaving them to the point that they had to sell their kids into slavery. 
Nehemiah was part of that. Then he takes the last six verses in this chapter to tell us how generous he is with his financial resources. And he ends it with a prayer asking God to remember him for all the good things that he's done for this people. Something smells a little fishy to me here. First of all, in verse 14, Nehemiah tells us for 12 years, he didn't use the king's food allowance. He had some sort of an allowance, a stipend from the king, from the government, but he wouldn't touch it. He reiterates in verse 18, saying how many animals were slaughtered at his table each day, but I won't use the king's money because presumably that would have put more of a burden on the people. They would have had to pay for it, not him. He doesn't want to put a financial burden on the people. You know, those, those people whom he just admitted to taking advantage of. That's very nice of him not to put any more financial burdens on them. That way they could pay off the interest that they owed him quicker. But the fact that Nehemiah is able to kill an ox, half a dozen sheep, and birds every single day tells me two other things about him. Number one, the man was rich. Oxen were the most expensive animals back then. If he wasn't using the king's allowance, he was using his own money for this, he was a rich man. That's okay. You're allowed to be rich. Number two, he had a lot of servants and family to feed. He mentions 150 Jews plus people of other nations in verse 17. He fed them all from his own pocket. That was very nice of him. On days when he wasn't extorting the people for their money, he was a very kind and benevolent governor. Praise the Lord. Speaking of governors, he throws a few others under the bus. Nehemiah makes a disturbing claim in verse 15. He says that the former governors laid burdens on the people and took food and wine and taxed the people. Who were the former governors of the land? This probably includes guys like Zerubbabel and Sheshbazar, guys that we met back in the book of Ezra. In other words, Nehemiah indicates that things weren't all peachy, even in the early years that things seemed to be very peachy. Remember how it took like nine chapters in the book of Ezra for us to get to anything really negative among the people of Israel? Well, this statement in Nehemiah makes us look back at that time and realize even those leaders were not perfect. Even in those years before, before Ezra's time, the leaders were heavy-handed upon their people. Now, why is he telling us this? Nehemiah tells us about the leaders and the rich noblemen profiting from the poor people in the land. The narrator makes a comment, lets us know Nehemiah was part of that. And then we go back to Nehemiah's perspective and he lets us know how rich he was, how righteous he was, and how much he feared the Lord. Is this what we call a humble brag? You know, a, a brag that is cloaked in good words of humility? Is he a model leader or not? Then you have his prayer at the end. What's with this prayer? We have seen some great prayers in Ezra and Nehemiah, haven't we? Ezra chapter 9, beautiful prayer right there, rich with biblical language and good theology and humility, praising the Lord for who he is. Nehemiah 1, another great prayer. Nehemiah 9, we're going to come to another one in a couple weeks from now. This is very different than that though, isn't it? It's not saturated with biblical language. It's not full of contrition for sin and humility and exalting God. It, it at least sounds very different. I would suggest to you, if one of your pastors ended a sermon with a prayer like this, you would be talking about it over lunch, half an hour later, in a very negative way. Lord, remember me for all the good things that I've done for this congregation. 
Amen. You may be dismissed. (laughs) Maybe if this passage were somewhere else in the book, we wouldn't be quite so bothered by it. But the fact that it comes right on the heels of hearing that Nehemiah and the other leaders took advantage of the economic climate, that makes this prayer and this whole section even more troublesome. And yet, at the same time, I should say this. Who of us wouldn't pray such a prayer to God? Especially in light of the reality of our imperfections as humans. Before coming here, I spent 15 years as full-time, full-time pastoral ministry. And, and amidst all the many decisions and ministries that we started and good things that happened, I made bad decisions, like any other leader. There were times that I look back and I'm like, I really wish I could have had that moment again, or I could have done that differently, or I could have, I, I prayed to God, God, don't let my ministry be characterized by that mistake. Hopefully, much of my ministry was characterized by fidelity to the word of God and the Lord himself, but I made bad decisions. And I prayed, Lord, may you remember me for good, not for those things. Now, here's what I'm getting at. Nehemiah disturbs me because Nehemiah is so much like me. He disturbs me because he is so human. The Bible does not whitewash its characters. They are not perfect. They are not heroes. God is the only hero in Scripture. Did Nehemiah do great things for his people? Yes, he did. He fed 150 people, Jews, and other people from other nations every day at his table. He led the efforts to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. He united people and confidently spoke out against the enemies of God. He demonstrated at times a healthy fear of God. He called out social injustice. Was Nehemiah a perfect leader? Absolutely not. He also participated in that social justice that he called out. He hypocritically accused others of sin while participating in himself. His prayers sometimes sound a bit egotistical and self-righteous. In other words, Nehemiah is human. Even the godliest of leaders need to check themselves for ego and self-serving tendencies. This passage urges us to humble ourselves before the Lord, to check the plank in our own eyes before we wipe sawdust from each other's faces. And consider the needs of the poor and destitute before our own needs. We can think about some of the applications based on the sin and the oppression that we see in this passage. We should be careful not to allow our own personal gain to be at the expense of others less fortunate. I heard a speaker last week, uh, the other, a couple days ago, actually give an example from a candy bar company. He said this particular company during wartime, when every other company was shrinking the size of their candy bars to gain more profit, during wartime, this company increased their size so that they could be better help for the people who were in need. That was a great example. And I was thinking about that, and I was contrasting it in my mind with the hotels a few years back. Remember when Hurricane Sandy hit? I don't know how many of you live near the Jersey Shore, but uh, we were living in the town that Sandy made landfall. So we saw devastation. We saw people lose everything, like 100% of their stuff gone. And then we saw hotels jack up their prices in that area to gouge the people that needed to be in somewhere because they had no home anymore. That's wrong. That's taking advantage of what was going on for personal gain. 
sometimes loving others comes at a personal cost to you. Sometimes loving others means that you don't gain when you could have gained. Instead of thinking, how can I profit from this? Perhaps we need to mostly consider, who can I love during this? We also consider the greed and the oppression of the leadership in this passage. Leadership should not be characterized by self-serving greed, but rather intentional acts of mercy and generosity for people in need. Leaders in God's kingdom must lead the way by putting others' needs before their own. And again, I recognize sometimes that is costly. It is not easy. It might mean less profit for our business. It might mean more difficulty on my life. But that's what it looks like to put others' needs before your own. That's what we're called to do as believers. True religion, the Bible says, is caring for orphans and widows in their distress. Let us not neglect the more weighty matters of God's law in order to fulfill the menial things. God desires mercy, not sacrifice. But more than all of these things, I think that this passage points us beyond imperfect leaders like Nehemiah and points us to the perfection of our great leader, Jesus Christ. We don't need a Nehemiah. We need a Jesus. Jesus perfectly leads us without ever ignoring the cries of the destitute. He is a greater Nehemiah. Jesus will never let you down. Jesus will never oppress the poor. Jesus will only be remembered by his righteous deeds. And with Jesus, there is no gray. There is only purest of white. So church, as we reflect on this passage, what I would encourage you to do as you leave here today, your, your mind is going to be on a lot of other things, the game, the fellowship, all that good stuff. Fix your eyes upon Jesus Christ. Fix your eyes not on the leaders of this world, but upon the perfect leader who died on your behalf. Fix your eyes on the author and perfecter of our faith. Let's take a moment and pray. Father, I pray that we leave here remembering the good that you have done for us. I pray that as we get this glimpse of the depravity of our own lives, that we would turn to you in humility, in confession, in recognition of our own shortcomings, and I ask God that you would be exalted among us. I pray that people here, myself included, Lord, would look not to the leadership of this world, but would look to you for all guidance and support and help. And Father, I pray that we, in our human frailty, would be more like Jesus Christ in all ways. We thank you for the grace and mercy that you've shown us upon the cross, for the love with which you've loved us, and I pray that we can be a people who love others as you have loved us. And Lord, we pray these things in the name of our great leader, Jesus. Amen. God bless. Have a great day.